Again, if you turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to begin in the middle of verse 10, I invite you to stand as I read for you our text. Our text this morning will be specifically verses 15 and 16, but giving a little bit of context, we begin there in the middle of verse 10, where Peter describes false teachers as daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. As inspirational as the Bible is, as full as it is of words that bring hope and comfort, not only to believers, but Interestingly, unbelievers in their moments of heaviness and grief. We must never overlook the fact that the word of God is equally a book of dire warning. It is constantly warning people of the spiritual, eternal dangers that stalk our souls. We see this in God's words from the very beginning to Adam and Eve concerning the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Recall in Genesis 2.17, God gave what? A warning. He's saying, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And here's the warning. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I don't know about you. If somebody says, if you do A, you're going to die, I'm going to avoid doing what? A. There are consequences when people refuse to obey God, when they refuse to follow the way of his wisdom, when they reject God's truth and preference of fulfilling their own desires, which always, always leads to their demise. In Proverbs 16.25, we read the very familiar words of Solomon who wrote, There is a way, there is a path, there is a course of action, there is this, this road that you might think, he says, there is a way that seems right to a man. I've, I've looked at the, all these different possibilities, and this is the one that seeks that pleases me and I will seek after. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end, its terminus is the way of death. It is the path, the road to death. Do what you think is right. Go on the path that you desire 
and you are actually on the path to doom, destruction, and death. The Bible is a book of warning. It is a villainous feature of the fallen nature of this sinful flesh to long for and to pursue and to even, you ready, justify a way, a path, a course of action, a set of behaviors that when we really stop and carefully consider, we know they stand in opposition to God's word, yet we do what? We pursue that way anyway. The only remedy to this is a careful study and application, not of the way that seems right to me, not of the way that leads to death, but a careful study and application of the way of God, the path of God, which according to Proverbs 2 is called the way of wisdom, God's wisdom, God's prescription for living. We read in Proverbs 2 verses 12 through 15 that God's wisdom will deliver you from the way, notice this, the way, the path of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths, the way of right of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Do you see a theme in these verses? What path are you on? What road are you pursuing? Now, everyone in this room will want to say, I'm on the road that leads to Christ. I'm on the narrow path, not the broad path. And I pray that that be so. But false teachers are out there, and their false teachers have a very clever way of getting us to be on the wrong path. Notice in our text this morning that we find Peter continuing his description of false teachers, and he will do so by appealing to an Old Testament example, that of Balaam, the son of Beor, and we'll talk about him a little bit more in a bit. But what I would have you see is how Peter uses Balaam in order to set up a contrast between, notice what he says in verse 15, the right way, these are those who have forsaken the right way, and they, he's contrasting that with what? The way of Balaam. So you're either on the right way or you are on the way of Balaam. The right way is that which is straight, the right way is level. It is the true way. This is what Peter called back up in verse 2, if you'll notice, the way of truth. The right way is God's way, and it always leads to holiness of living, and it will lead ultimately to salvation. Remember that Jesus referred to himself with such language, saying in John 14, 6, what? You know it well. For I am the, the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can journey. No one comes to the Father. No one has any other path to the Father except through me because I am the path. I am the way. There is no other way. There is no other path. There is no other form of teaching by which people may know God. There is no other way by which we may be made right with God except his way, the way of wisdom, the way of Christ. In contrast to all of this 
is the perverse and crooked ways of the wicked, which is an apt illustration of the misleading teachings of the false teachers that Peter is speaking about. But before we dig into our text proper, let me also point out that in these two verses, Peter speaks to his readers about the way of Balaam. He's supplying for us the very motive of Balaam for misleading the Israelites. That motive is ultimately covetousness. He covets something. And so what we're going to talk about is that the way of Balaam is the way of covetousness. It is the longing and desire for something that is not rightfully yours. It is the longing for something that you ought not to have. And we'll find that covetousness is at the root of the way of Balaam. And it becomes then for us a reminder, the warning, to beware of covetousness in our own souls. Beware of longing for those things that you ought not to have. That scripture actually may say you should not ever have. And so we consider the covetousness of false teachers. We've considered 11 characteristics already, or it's 12, uh, I guess I can count 12. And so now we're on the 13th characteristic, their covetousness. So look again at verse 15 and 16. Reality of false teachers, what are they like? They're forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteous of unrighteousness since we're considering this idea of covetousness again let me define very specifically what it means to covet to covet speaks of literally the desire to have wealth or possessions of someone else it is looking at what someone else has and saying i want it for me now sometimes we see this i am amazed at how prolific it is in children do you know children are covetous they have covetousness in their souls and uh, so what, how does that manifest itself? I, I'm amazed you can't go into Walmart and not hear a child say, can I have that? Can I have that? I want that. I need that. What is that? That is the manifestation of desiring something of someone else's. It belongs to the store, not to them. The sin of coveting is so egregious to God. It is so anathema to God that he bothered to name it in the Ten Commandments, right? In Exodus 20, verse 17, we find the way of God for his people defined as this. You shall not covet. That is, you shall not desire for yourself that which belongs to someone else, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, you read that list and you just say, well, it's just a list of possessions. But I think each one of those things identifies an aspect of the way in which we might covet someone else's things. We find that coveting leads to a number of other sins. We say, you shall not covet your, your uh, neighbor's Wife, well, that's saying beware of lust, beware of sexual sin, of coveting that other person. We're warned of greed, wanting the possessions or financial position of others and, and wanting their, their servants and, and their ox and their donkey. We can even say, hey, I like their job. Do you know that in this culture, someone's ox or donkey was the main means by which they did their 
work. That's how they did their employment. And so now you're saying, I like their job. I want these things. The opposite, beloved, of covetousness is contentment. Oh, that we would learn to be content with what we have. And I would dare say that that is a lesson that we all need to take to heart. We live in a very blessed nation. When I, what I mean by that is that we, we don't really lack for things. I know things are more difficult now than perhaps they've been at other times in our nation's history, but we do pretty well when you compare ourselves to others in this world. The opposite of covetousness is contentment. And contentment, according to the word of God, is never found in lustful pleasures, and it is never found in the temporal possession of things. Where is contentment found? Where can you, what can you pursue that will bring a satisfaction to the soul and not leave you always with this sense that there's got to be something more? The Bible tells us. Contentment is found in godliness, in the pursuit of being genuinely like Christ. Where does that stand written? Well, look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. What's, what does the Apostle Paul say? But godliness, this pursuit of Christ's likeness, actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. For if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires will plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Beloved, covetousness kills contentment. Longing for all these things this world might offer you kills joy and peace. And yet, as we are about to see, this is the very path, this is the very course of false teachers. Let me remind you that verse 15 is actually a continuation of the thought that Peter began back in verse 10, that false teachers are those, if you note in verse 10, who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Their whole being is about how to satisfy themselves. It's me, 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 I, I, I. It's about what I find pleasurable. Peter continues to elaborate on what this looks like in the lives of false teachers so that I believe we might recognize them first of all. But I think, again, because some of this is so internal, it also serves as a warning for his readers, a warning for us, that we might take careful examination of ourselves, that we might see if any of these hurtful, harmful, evil ways are found in us. And the problem is it's very hard to see. And that's why the psalmist David said, search me, O God, search me. By its very nature, 
it's deceptive. It is possible for well-intentioned people to pick up the way, the attitudes, the behaviors of these false teachers. And so here is this warning against covetousness. And what is covetousness according to our text? Well, let us consider three things. And we begin with the first one. The first two will be pretty quick. And it is this. The first is that covetousness is forsaking the right way. When you desire the things of others, you're forsaking the right way. Peter describes false teachers as those who are presently forsaking the right way, present tense. It is not that false teachers have simply forsook the right way in the past and they're just now kind of blindly off doing something else. They are presently forsaking the right way. It implies that they know the right way. It means they know what God's word has said and they are refusing to obey it. Now, there would be no one in this congregation that knows what God wants them to do but has refused to obey it, right? You see, that's the way of covetousness. That, we will find, is the way of Balaam. They are presently, he says, currently, consciously, deliberately disobeying the truth of God, a truth that they know but reject. They involve themselves in this ongoing process of abandoning the straight way of revealed truth in order to do what? To satisfy the temporal cravings of their own flesh. There's nothing godly about it. They can say elaborate words. They can be eloquent in their speech. They can even use some of the light, right language, but their desire is not for the glory of God, not for the well-being of the people, but for the satisfaction of their own selves. How is all of this, this act of covetousness? Beloved, when a person looks at the things of this world, when a person looks at the so-called pleasures of this world and longs for them over and above the things of God, such is not only, we would say, idolatry, but according to Colossians 3, verse 5, it is the result of evil desire, and Paul says greed, or what? What is greed? Covetousness. When we begin to entertain desires that God warns us against, we are forsaking the right way. The way that we know is good and true. But this is the constant path of the false teacher. And, have, and, and such a forsaking has an inevitable result and leads to another description of covetousness. The second aspect, that covetousness is a going astray. When you long for that which doesn't belong to you, you're actually going astray. Notice that Peter does not say that false teachers are actively forsaking the right way and actively going astray. No, they are actively forsaking uh, the right way, but they have once and for all found themselves in a state or condition of lostness. They are astray. They are out there. They, by their present actions, have separated themselves, forsaking, turning their backs, ignoring and rejecting the right way. They have then, therefore, lost the way to God. Because if they do not receive Christ, whom they know, whom they have been presented, when you reject the gospel as it's presented before you, what other way is there? There is no other way by which we must be saved other than the name of Christ. 
This stands in contrast to those who have been brought to faith, who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope of eternal life, grounded in the merits of Christ rather than eternal death grounded in the wages of their sins. Peter uses the same root word for going astray. If you want to just turn over a couple of pages to 1 Peter chapter 2, notice that Peter uses the same root word in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, if you'll note that with me, where Peter writes this, for you believers were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardians of your soul. You were going astray. You had been in this position where you were following, uh, following a, a, a false way. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. There was a time when you, because of false teaching, you indulged the flesh. You enjoyed the teaching of false teachers. You were continually Peter says, going astray. But when you came to recognize the truth of the grace of God as found where in verse 24, look just one verse up in verse 24, that he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. When you recognize that Christ has bought you, that Christ has brought you near, then you returned, Peter said, and that's once for all. It's in the past tense, aorist tense. You have been once for all by the grace and work of God brought to Christ, who is the pastor and overseer of your soul. The false teachers, because of their greed and covetousness, do not want to return to Christ. They're living for this moment. They want to be their own Christ. They are anti-Christ. They have lost their way. But Peter goes on from here to give an example of what false teachers who are motivated by their own personal gain look like. And that brings us to this third consideration where we'll spend the rest of our time. It is covetousness is following the way of Balaam. It is following the way of Balaam. Now, I find it intriguing that Peter brings up this character by the name of Balaam, the son of of Beor. He's offering us insight by bringing this up to the motive and the method of false teachers. He says, forsaking the right way, false teachers are those who have followed the way of Balaam. That literally, they have followed out. False teachers are those who follow out, follow after the way of Balaam, meaning they're bringing, they're going to come to the same end as Balaam. Does anybody know how Balaam ends? He dies. He's He's slain by the Israelites. We'll see that in just a moment. But what is the way of Balaam? Well, in the Old Testament account, Balaam seems actually, interestingly, as you read it, you might say, well, he seems kind of aloof to the idea of money. He doesn't want to be hired to do this job that he knows he can't do. Uh, but I say to you that in the end, that was a pretense, a smokescreen. For why else would Balaam, the Balak, the king of Moab, persistently offer Balaam a financial reward if it was not already known that Balaam accepted material rewards for his services in the art of divination. Balak knows this guy has a price. And so Balak says, I'll give you this, I'll give you this. He says, I can't go against what God has said. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let me, let me go ahead and refresh your memories on this character of Balaam for he is someone that Peter expected that you would know about. 
He expected his readers to have some comprehension of the account of, of Balaam. And we find uh, the account main and proper in, in Numbers 22. And one of the first things that stands out to us is that Balaam appears as someone who actually knew a lot about the Lord God of Israel. This is not some ignorant, agnostic type person who had no clue as to who the God of Israel was. He knew exactly who the God of Israel was. Balaam, according to the text, had a reputation as one who was enabled to invoke God so that he pronounced a blessing upon people. The people, if he did that, they would be blessed. And when he pronounced a curse upon people, what happened to the people? They'd be cursed. That's quite the, ta- the, the ability. This was the king of Moab's understanding. And in Numbers 22, verse 6, we find Balak, the king of Moab, sending word to Balaam saying this. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people, the people of Israel, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed. And he whom you curse is cursed. Now, if you know anything about Israel at this time, they were the recipients of what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. There's something that's kind of going against all of this because Abraham was told, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And Balaam knows this is going to fly right in the face of the Abrahamic covenant. At that time, Balaam was not dwelling, though, among the people of Israel. People, uh, rather, he was living in upper Mesopotamia, which would be modern-day Iraq, among pagan people. And Balaam, we know, was a diviner who, uh, who used the name of Yahweh, evidently, to accomplish his purposes. Balaam was practicing his arts at the same time that Israel was wandering in the desert. Balak, the king of Moab, was concerned about this nation that had now come up out of Egypt, was wandering in the desert near his borders, and spectacular things had been taking place among them. Balak had reports of how Israel had fought against the Amorites in the wilderness and conquered them. He was concerned that Israel may now do the very same or even worse to Moab, for the number of the Israelites was great, perhaps two to three million. So Balak summoned Balaam to come to Moab, brings him down from northern Iraq, brings him to Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. And he says, will you curse the people of God for me? But why would Balaam come? Well, with the summons, Balak included a financial incentive. Notice what we read in verse 7. It says that there are fees for divination. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination. Now Balak's initial response is found in verse 8, and, and it was to tell Balak's ambassadors this. He said, spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you as the Lord, as Yahweh may speak to me. So now he's going to go and beseech Yahweh. This is Balaam's first mistake. For he, if he were truly a prophet of God, he would have known that he was not to go with pagan people to take up Moab's cause against God's chosen people. Why would you do that? 
So what was it that tempted him to even consider the request? Instead of simply saying, no, I will not do it at all, he says, now let's spend the night and I'm going to go and see if I can figure this out. Because ultimately what's going on, there's money on the table and Balaam wants it. The lure of money. But to his credit, Balaam knew enough about God at this moment to send Balak's ambassadors home empty-handed. For we read down in verses 13 and 14 these words. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. That's what he should have said initially. Not too bad. This is good that he did this. But Balak king of Moab would not be so easily dismissed and so he sends more men to summon Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel and what are you going to do the guy says I'm not coming you put an offer on the table it was pretty good but I refused it so what's Balak going to do we're going to make it even sweeter we're going to add even more this is what Balak uses to entice the pot. Listen to what Balak says from Numbers 22 verses 15 through 17. Then Balak sent, again sent leaders more numerous and more distinguished than the former. So he's buttering them up. They came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak the son of Zippor, let nothing I beg you hinder you from coming to me for I will indeed honor you. How? Richly. Whatever you thought of the first uh, offer, I'm going to go above that. And I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. Again, Balaam's initial response to the second request seems spot on. In verse 18, he says to them, uh, says to them, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Sounds good, right? But then Balak makes his second mistake. Rather than send them on their way, he entertains this request in verse 19. He says, now please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. What's he doing? He's trying to figure out a way, how can I get this money? I've got to have it. I've got to figure this out. In this way, Balaam reminds us of the double-minded man of James chapter 1, verse 8, does he not? He's unstable in all of his ways. For the lure of money was too great for him to resist, and Balaam ends up going with these men. Here, then, is Balaam's sin. Ultimately, he's a slave to money. There's an old adage that says, everyone has their price. Balaam had one. Now, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in verse 15 of our text that Balaam actually loved the wages of unrighteousness. He he gives us an insight that we didn't get in the Numbers passage. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. What is motivating Balaam is the fact that he wants the money. He's just trying to figure out how can I make this work? How can I finagle? And it's not finagling. He doesn't have to finagle Balak. He doesn't have to trick Balak. Who's he trying to finagle? God. God. 
The word loved in 1 Peter uh, 2.15 here uh, is the word agapeo. Uh, We call that that unconditional, unwavering affection. Only rather than this unwavering uh, uh, affection towards God or towards others, where do we find his affection lay? It lays in the wages, in the pursuit of unrighteousness. Balaam's affection lay for these the, the pay for services that result in sinful wrongdoing. The word unrighteousness means here wrong or evil doing, and it is related to what we learned back up in verse 13, that false teachers are those, remember where it says, they suffer evil as the payment for their evil doing. They suffer wrong for their wrongdoing. They're not suffering wrong because it's being put on them. Because they pursue evil, that's what they get. That is the result. And here is Balaam who loves being paid. Peter says, by inspiration of the Spirit, he loves being paid to do evil. Balaam and therefore false teachers who are like Balaam, Balaam had intelligently mapped out his course of action so that he might retrieve the monies that had been put on the table. He plotted and planned how he might succeed in accomplishing evil. And you know the story. He didn't accomplish it by cursing the people, did he? He couldn't figure out, how am I going to actually do what Balak wants me to do? Because I cannot curse the people. But Balaam, knowing enough about the Lord, says to himself and ultimately to Balak, he says, I can't curse the people of God, but I think I know how to get God to curse the people of God. If I can get them to engage in sexual immorality, their God will punish them. What's he doing? He's manipulating the circumstance so that he might retrieve what? His money. He might retrieve the money. Balaam's love for the reward caused him to suppress his better convictions. Beloved, a love for temporal gains, a love for temporal pleasures will always suppress your pursuit of the eternal. When you want things of this world more than you long for the things of God, you're suppressing your better conviction. You know better. For Balaam, it was a love of money, but such a reward for doing evil need not be restricted to money, people. It may include anything that a person hopes to get out of engaging in some unrighteous deed. If I can do this, I can get this. As believers, we need to constantly assess what are those things that motivate us to sin. We need to identify them and bring them before the Lord in prayer. Again, this is an apt application of David's prayer in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful, any evil way in me. And lead me not in my way, not in the way of Balaam, not in the way of covetousness. Lead me in what way? The everlasting, eternal, divine way. Lead me not in the way of the world. Let me not pursue the way of pride. Let me not pursue the way of self but the eternal way of God. But because of Balaam's love and longing for money, he went, he went the way 
uh, his way with Balak's men so that he might pronounce, he might be able to uh, accomplish his purpose of retrieving the money. But something remarkable happens as Balaam journeys along. You know the story. Looking back to the account in Numbers 22, we find Balaam was riding on the back of his trustworthy donkey. Evidently had this donkey for a long time. This donkey and him, they were, they were buds. He trusted this beast of burden. On this particular occasion, while on the way, the angel of the Lord appeared in front of the donkey with a sword drawn in his hand. And the donkey was smart enough to turn away into the field. Well, we read of Balaam's response when the donkey does this because Balaam is spiritually blind at this point. And so Balaam responds. It says, Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way, into the way. What way are they going? The wrong way. He's not going the right way. God's actually being gracious. I'm going to get in your way so that you will rethink what you're doing. But no, I'm going to beat the beast that has always been faithful to me in order to go on this path of wrongdoing. A bit further on the way, Balaam and his donkey were uh, passing through what verse 24 says was a narrow path of the vineyard with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And now being hemmed in, the angel of the Lord again stood in front of the donkey, again where Balaam cannot see, and it stopped and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, crushing him there. And again we read of Balaam's response in verse 25. What does Balaam do? I'm going to beat the donkey again. Something similar happens a third time in verses 26 and 27. The angel of the Lord appears in front of the donkey, again in a narrow place, with nowhere for her to go. So now she simply just plops on the ground. She just lays down there on the ground, and in anger, Balaam again strikes the donkey. And since Balaam was not getting the point, we read in verse 28 something extraordinary. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said, she did not bray, she did not snort, she said in human language to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now then, if my donkey spoke to me, I think I'd be pretty shocked. I mean, I'm just trying to get myself into the story. I'm trying to read myself there, right? I would freak out. Can you say that again? Did I just hear what I thought that I heard? This was not normal. Donkeys don't just talk. Well, how does Balaam react? Well, he equally blows my mind in the story. He continues the conversation like it's just perfectly normal. He answers the donkey's question in verse 29 saying, because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. I don't know that I'd want to tell a talking donkey my intentions to kill her. But... The donkey replied to Balaam now in verse 30 saying, am I, not, uh, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? 
Balaam continues the conversation with this donkey. Very short answer there. No. This was Balaam's rebuke. He was rebuked by a beast of burden. He's re- re- he was rebuked by, uh, Peter says, a mute donkey. Obviously, not always mute. Not in this moment. He received, Peter says in verse 16 of our text, he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. God did not allow Balaam to be his own master in pursuing his own evil purposes. He was rebuked. In this moment, we're finding he was convicted of his own sin of disobedience. Balaam was rebuked for acting contrary to what he knew was God's will for in this matter. And this is the point, beloved. False teachers are not unknowingly disobeying the Lord. They are quite aware of what they are doing, and they stand in opposition to what God's word has said. Balaam, this evidently successful, proud man, was brought low by a mute donkey, an animal that does not speak, who now spoke with the voice of a man. Can you imagine? Balaam's like, you've made a mockery of me these three times. Well, now I'm really mocking you because I'm talking to you and you're answering me. Now, some have taken issue with this account, saying that since donkeys can't talk, this must have been nothing more than the imaginations of an irritated and conflicted man. As I like to say to those who will acknowledge the possibility of great miracles and wonders like, oh, I don't know, God creating the world in six days or Jesus being raised from the dead, is there really any such thing as too much of a miracle? I'm amazed at how many people think there's just too much of a miracle here. What? on earth is too much of a miracle. The God who calls all things into existence in the space of six days and out of nothing, you do not think for a moment that he can cause a mute donkey to talk? If you believe at all in miracles, then you must realize that it is no more difficult for God to utter thoughts through the mouth of a donkey in the words of men than it was for God to stop men instantaneously from talking to one another in the same language as he did at the Tower of Babel. For Balaam, Peter says that this restrained the madness of the prophet. This does not mean that Balaam stopped his journey. Rather, we are being told that Balaam was hindered. He's being kept from being able to do what he would like to do. The word madness here speaks not of Balaam's sanity, but rather of his moral perverseness, his senseless folly in religious matters as he deliberately pursued a way that was contrary to the way and command of God. Balaam's mind was upon his own desires and his own way rather than the path or the way of God. In the Numbers account, there was more to come for Balaam. According to Numbers 22:31, we read that as soon as the donkey had spoken to him, that the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and now Balaam saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. I would think that might get your attention. 
Not only had the donkey rebuked Balaam, but now we see that the angel of the Lord is there saying, you're on the wrong path. Time does not permit me to expound upon all that took place in the life of Balaam, so let me jump ahead and just tell you, he doesn't pursue this particular course because he's unable to curse the people of God. But again, he finds a course of action that will ultimately lead to Israel's demise, but in so doing, he secures his own demise. There is nothing pleasant about Balaam's end. In Numbers 31, verses 7 and 8, we find that Balaam died when Israel conquered Midian with the sword. So Israel made war with Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword off with his head. I added the last part. With reference to our second Peter text, Peter's point then is to make a comparison between Balaam in the Old Testament age and false teachers in the New Testament age, the age in which we live. Like Balaam, false teachers are simply preachers for hire. They are people who want to make money and see that preaching something is a means to satisfying their own desires. If you offer them what they want, they will deliver whatever message you want. Some of you may have heard this, um, and I don't know as recently, but I know as of a few years ago, that most Christian songs that were being written and being played on Christian radio stations are not written by Christians at all. They're being written by unbelievers who just know how to put the right words together. It's a formula, and then they give it to a so-called Christian singer, and they sing it, and everybody makes their money. False teachers love the wages of unrighteousness. The affection is on what they can get from the people. In contrast to this are God's true prophets or God's true teachers. They are not in it for the money. Rather, they belong to the Lord and they will be seen as faithfully preaching the word of God. As Peter told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, that preach the word in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with great patience and instruction. And the people will not like it all the time. True teachers of God's word faithfully preach regardless of whether or not there is a financial reward at the end of the day. I'm so very grateful to God and to this congregation that I'm allowed to make a living preaching the gospel. But I do not preach the gospel. I do not preach the gospel for a paycheck. I preach the gospel out of a call and out of obedience to God. And if for some reason you all didn't let me do it here, I'd just find somewhere else to do it. And I know I've been here for 27, 28 years, whatever it is now. And uh, it's been a long time since I used to do this. I used to do this for no pay. I'm very grateful for what God has provided. False teachers are not in it to be faithful to God. They are in it to fulfill their own needs and desires, to accumulate possession or power or prestige. Beloved, when our motivation for serving the Lord becomes focused on what we can get or how we can get what we want, then I submit to you that we are in the way of Balaam. You are following false teaching. We are on the course of 
of deviation and doom. While it is devastating to a church when such a person is the preacher or the teacher, please know that you are just as susceptible to serving the Lord for your own sordid gain rather than out of a call and obedience to the Lord. So why are you here? Are you here because of what you can get out of others? And be careful with that. No, I'm not here what I can get out of others. I just want other people to think well of me, so I'm here. Same thing. You're succumbing to the false teaching, the way of Balaam. Let us regard the Lord as more precious than all things, so that we might say with Paul, and you all considered this at some great depth last week, that we might say with Paul, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value. What's the surpassing value? Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I've not followed Christ for the money. I've not followed Christ for prestige or for gain. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to what? The resurrection from the dead. Lead me in the everlasting way. By way of application, let me remind you again that one of the tendencies of false teachers is the priority and pursuit of temporary earthly things over and above eternal heavenly things. Let me make this thought for you. A love for the temporal things of this earth, whatever they may be for you, will suppress the passionate pursuit of eternal things. A love for the temporal things of this earth, whatever they may be for you. I don't know if it's money. I don't know if it's, it's recognition. I don't know if what accolades it may be. But a love for the temporal things of this earth will suppress the passionate pursuit of eternal things. And so I ask you this morning, what do you passionately pursue? What is it that is on the forefront of your mind when you wake up in the morning and follows you through the day until you lay your head on that pillow? Can you say that it is the things of God or are your affections more geared towards the things of this earth? If the latter, then you are succumbing to the wiles of false teaching. It is the way of Balaam. There are some who might answer that question saying something along the lines, well, pastor, you got to understand me. I know that I'm kind of maybe lukewarm when it comes to following Christ, but I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not ultimately forsaking. I'm kind of in this middle ground. There's no middle ground. If you think for a moment that you can sit in a, in a Bible-preaching church and say, you know, I, I know that these things are are probably true, but 
it's not really for me. I'll let other people do that. I'm just not going to be this evil person here. You are in the way of Balaam because you are still pleasing what? Your own flesh. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable not being the worst of sinners or the chief of sinners, and I'm um, comfortable not really pursuing Christ. You are on a dreadful path toward hell. It is the way of Balaam, and how did that work out for him? You are deceiving yourselves if you think that. The equation is not actually a scale. It is not, do I pursue more uh, eternal things than I do earthly things? The equation is that only a life that passionately pursues the eternal things of God, that seeks to follow God's way, only that life finds ultimate peace, joy, satisfaction, and contentment, and ultimately eternal life. Anything less than this, be it a purposeful pursuit of worldly things, or even an indifferent pursuit of anything, means you are in the way of Balaam, the pursuit of one's personal pleasures over the person of God. Let us pray and let us strive to realize more and more what it means to love the Lord our God. How? With all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Mark 12.30. Lord, grant us the grace to experience this. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the warnings of Scripture. That even in the warnings we find comfort because that you bothered to warn us of the dangers that might affect our souls. And we know that Peter was so concerned about false teachers who had infiltrated the church who were leading people astray. Father, we recognize that we still live in a day where there are still false teachers still leading people astray. There are those who are still promoting this form of covetousness, this way of Balaam, this pursuing and, uh, and prioritizing the pursuit of personal pleasure over and above pursuing the person and work of Christ. Father God, I do pray that you would enable us, search us, to see if there's any way in which we are following in this way of Balaam, that we would not be succumbing to that kind of false teaching, that we would be a people who are passionately pursuing Christ-likeness personally, privately, publicly, corporately. Father God, I pray for those who have been stuck in that, what they thought is a middle ground. Christ has taught that we are either for him or we're against him. That there's no half point, half way that we need to give all to Christ, that if Christ be anything, he must be everything. And so, Father, I pray that each one of us would you would reveal to us those areas that we have yet to surrender to you, that we still see too much of ourselves, where we still see too much of our wanting to please ourselves than to please Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would make these applications known to our hearts as we seek to truly do the most incredible task that we could ever try to do, and that is to say, Lord, I surrender all, everything. It is all yours. Take everything I have. Take my life. Take everything 
and let it be yours and used by you to bring you glory. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.